Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, a top 20 hit for the monkeys that was co-written and produced by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Bobby Hart. The legendary songwriting team of Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart found early success with songs such as Lazy Elsie Molly, which was a top 10 R&B hit for Chubby Checker, Come a Little Bit Closer, which was a top 5 pop hit for Jay and the Americans, and the instrumental theme song for the long-running soap opera Days of Our Lives. The pair are best known, however, for writing and producing more than 20 songs for the Monkees, including Last Train to Clarksville, Theme from the Monkees, I Want to Be Free, I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, She, Words, and Valerie. As artists, the Grammy-nominated duo found success in the late 1960s with the self-penned Top 40 hits, Out and About, I Wonder What She's Doing Tonight, and Alice Long, You're Still My Favorite Girlfriend. Bobby Hart wrote a number of hit singles apart from Tommy Boyce, including Hurt So Bad, which was a hit for Little Anthony and the Imperials in 1965, before finding subsequent chart success with The Letterman, Jackie DeShannon, and Linda Ronstadt, who made it a top 10 pop hit in 1980. He also wrote Helen Reddy's number one single, Keep On Singing, as well as Lane Brody's number 15 country hit, Over You, which was included in the film Tender Mercies and earned Bobby Golden Globe and Academy Award nominations in 1983. He continued to score on the R&B and pop charts into the 1980s with new editions My Secret and Robbie Neville's Dominoes. Most recently, the Monkees recorded Boyce and Hart's Whatever's Right on their critically acclaimed 2016 comeback album, Good Times. In 2015, Bobby published his autobiography, Psychedelic Bubblegum, Boyce and Hart, the Monkees, and turning mayhem into miracles. You know, Scott, when we were kids, there was already a Monkees revival happening. I remember that's right around the time, kind of in the, the mid-80s, when MTV started rerunning all those episodes in syndication. Right. And uh, me and my sister would watch, you know, watch all these Monkees episodes and learn the song. I remember I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. That was one of my favorite songs as a kid, like even in elementary school. Yeah, that's my. That's definitely my favorite Monkees record. It was such a cool record. And... I would watch those episodes on MTV, like after school and stuff. Here's what is kind of tripping me out right now as I think about it. That was 20 years after the Monkees first kind of hit the scene. Right. Now it's been 30 years since uh, we were into Monkees revival <laughs> mode when we were kids. So it, yeah. there's been more time since the Monkees revival than there was between right. the original Monkees success and when they started replaying those shows and we grew up on them. Yeah, well, that's crazy. I mean, the Monkees have just come out with this new record called Good Times, and it commemorates the 50-year anniversary of the Monkees being a band, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, they, they just... They kind of don't seem that old, honestly. And the songs don't seem that old. No, they still seem pretty fresh and, and kind of timeless. There was definitely a time where thinking the monkeys were cool was not cool. Right. Like, right. Th- the monkeys were kind of considered, you know, they call them the prefab for right. this manufactured kind of thing. Uh, no matter how the monkeys came to be or what the circumstances were, I mean, yeah, it was intended to be as a TV show, whatever. I mean, whoever played on the records... They're great records. Yeah. I mean, the killer pop songs, killer music from that era. And now it's kind of where, as it used to be completely unhip to dig the monkeys, now it's actually kind of a hipster thing to be into the monkeys. Well, exactly. And I think that's evidenced by this new record the monkeys just put out. And the people that are involved in the record 
are like big names from from recent rock memory, like people like Noel Gallagher from Oasis and right. Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie, Wayne Schlesinger from uh, Fountains of Wayne. And really, I mean, writing really cool songs for the band, but honestly, kind of doing their best voice and heart impression. Right, right. Yeah, it's cool because uh, you, you kind of say, hey, the Monkees have a new album, and then that makes you go, huh, I wonder what it's like. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. Why is it really cool? It's really cool because it sticks to the voice and heart kind right, of formula of right. what made the Monkees uh, great artists back in the day. Right. And that was, you know, more than just the show, more than just, you know, the antics of the guys and stuff. Those songs grabbed people. Right. And Boyce and Hart, their music, the songs they wrote became a part of American pop culture and an important part of music history. I think probably anyone who's a Monkees fan knows this, but maybe some people don't. You know, Michael Nesmith's mother invented liquid paper. I, I did know that. He's rich. Yeah. Although I will tell you, they might want to look into a new business because not a lot of people <laughs> typing these days on no, typewriters. No, Well, you know, some of these hipsters that have now embraced the monkeys are probably typing on typewriters. And and <laughs> so, you know, it might Mike Nesmith might be about to have a double comeback. Yeah, it's true. Hey, hipster with a typewriter, you can feel double cool when you use liquid paper because you're honoring a monkey. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's give a listen to Bobby Hart. Sounds good. Bobby, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to, to be here in your, your beautiful home. This is really wonderful to, to come visit with you today. Thank you. Yeah, I wish we could have it all like on camera, but yeah. the, the mind's eye will have to do for now. There you go. <laughs> right. You can um, describe it in detail if exactly. you like. We'll wait. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, well, you were born in Phoenix. You yeah. grew up in Arizona before coming to Los Angeles as a young adult in the 1950s. What initially attracted you to L.A.? Well, I came here to go to disc jockey school. I went to uh, Don Martin School of Radio right off of Hollywood Boulevard in Los Palmas. And uh, there was something I had thought I was going to do my whole childhood, basically. I had little uh, make-believe radio stations in my room that grew in sophistication over the years <laughs> until I finally got an actual web core tape recorder and, uh, and uh, you know, two 15-inch uh, uh, turntables, and it was looking pretty good. So... Uh, I, I was pretty shy as a kid, and I I knew I loved music, wanted to do something in music. That's the only thing I could think of where nobody would see me, hmm. and I could still <laughs> be a star in my hometown or something. Well. And uh, after you moved to L.A., you released a couple of rockabilly singles of your own under your given name, Robert Luke Harshman, but those were cover songs. Um, I'd love to know how you first got into writing your own songs in those early days. I shifted gears within weeks or you know a month or two at least. From here, from uh, going to disc jockey school in the night, and I got a job printing record labels in the daytime to to pay my rent. <laughs> and on the way to work every morning, I would pass a little recording studio that had a marquee with movable letters that said, uh, "Come in and see what your voice sounds like." Ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so every you know every morning, every evening, I'd look up at that marquee, and that would start to grow on me. And I finally got up my nerve, and I went in on a Saturday my day off and uh and i made a little demo and did the backgrounds and a little uh piano track and the guy made me sound so good that i was just really uh hooked uh, oh. at the end of that ten dollar session <laughs> and uh, i dropped out of disc jockey school and uh and started to try to fulfill a different dream of becoming mm -hmm. uh 
a rockabilly star, yeah. basically. <laughs> so uh, after a few, then, then I just, I was there every Saturday in that little studio making demos. And one day a guy came in and said, go see this record producer down the street at Crossroads of the World. And uh, he's having good luck of getting his artist placed on labels. So I went down there after a work on a, on a weekday and, and I saw a guy named Jesse Hodges and he, he heard my little demo and he said, uh, you sound pretty good, kid, but I'm only signing guys who, who have their own material. Huh. Go home and write some songs and come back and see me if you want. Huh. Wow. So I'd never done it, but he said to do it. So I went home and wrote a couple songs and he signed me. Had a record deal within, uh, you know, a couple of three months after hitting wow. town. Wow. Well, in 1959, you met Tommy Boyce, who was also in L.A. pursuing his own musical dreams. And, and Tommy was just starting to experience his first taste of success as a songwriter with uh, Be My Guest, which became a top 10 pop and R&B hit for Fats Domino that year. And from what I understand, it was Tommy who introduced you to Lee Silver, who became your, your manager and helped you land your own first cut as a songwriter when Dr. Heartache was recorded by Tommy Sands of Teenage Crush fame in about 1961. You can try everybody in lonesome town, but the only man to make it you well is Dr. Heartache. It's surgery removing one of Cupid's darts. Yeah, Dr. Heartache, a specialist in broken hearts. Talk about that experience of hearing a well-known artist sing a song that you had written. Well, I really wasn't thrilled with his rendition of it, but uh, it, it was thrilling to see my my song on a on a on a national record chart on Cashbox magazine. I think it was number ninety nine for one week or something like that. <laughs> right. But uh, uh, yeah, as he said, Tommy uh, Tommy and I met in the office of Jesse Hodges, my manager and record producer, and. Uh, when he introduced me to to Lee Silver, uh, that was a big break because Lee had had some success with uh, Jan and Arnie and Jan and Dean, and and uh, and so he took me in the studio and uh, recorded a couple songs and and got them uh, played locally and actually hit the local charts. So that was kind of a big break. Yeah. So that would have been uh, "Girl in the Window." Was that? Yeah. Can it be she's lonely too? Lost her love like I lost you. Could it be they had a fight? Like the one we had last night. This little girl, this little girl, the girl in the window. And I think that was around the time that you started going by the name Bobby Hart. How did how did that come about? Well, that was Lee. Uh, he changed my name without asking. He, when the record <laughs> came out, he he uh, tossed me a box of CD, a box of a forty fives, and uh, and he said, "Oh, by the way, I changed your name." It's, <laughs> Robert Luke Harshman was way too long and uh, not commercial sounding. So, <laughs> so you you had that someone else made that decision for yeah. you. So we we could be talking about the great songwriting team of Boyce and Harshman. Yeah, we could have. Yeah, yeah but, wouldn't yeah. have. Didn't have the same ring. Yeah, like, not yeah. as snappy. Yeah. Um, well, in 1963, you moved to New York and became part of the, the famous Brill Building scene. Now, talk about how that opportunity came about and what a day in the life of an up-and-coming New York songwriter was like. Yeah, well, uh, as I said, Tommy and I hung out, but then he got uh, a really good opportunity to to go to New York and, uh, and write for Dunes Records as a songwriter, contract writer. And he was there... Uh, 
year and a half before I got the chance to go back and join them. Mm. And that's when we actually became songwriter partners in, in earnest. And uh, it was the days of the cubicles and, uh, and <laughs> all the publishers had the little rooms about uh, the size of a, people don't remember what phone booths are, but <laughs> about something like that. And just big enough for a piano right? and a straight chair so somebody else could sit there and with a guitar. So we did that uh, for off and on for a couple of years in New York, yeah. sitting in the, in the little cubicle trying to write song, writing songs. and Was that the, the kind of thing where you guys would show up every day at a, at a certain time, like a, like a regular job type of thing? It, it was. I had gotten signed to Don Costa's uh, publishing company, South Mountain Music, so we would do that. He would tell me he was living in a suburb, and he'd come in on the subway, and, and we'd just write until we got uh, tired and hungry, and yeah. Tommy would go home, and I'd be alone in a big city where I knew no one uh, <laughs> and, and uh, walked the streets of uh, Broadway and 42nd Street area. Yeah. Uh, but it was a wonderful time because New York was uh, just so much more energetic than, mm. you know, what I was used to in Phoenix and in Los Angeles even. <laughs> yeah. And um, the entire music business was situated, as you mentioned, in the Brill Building, 1619 Broadway, and another building called the 1650 building, which was right. just a block up. So you just run into people. And so we met a lot of people. Tommy had been there long enough that he knew uh, a lot of people in the business. And so he was introducing me around. And uh, the, our first hits came when Tommy introduced me to Wes Farrell, who was uh, a successful songwriter, but also was a general professional manager of a small publisher. Mm. Yeah. And so uh, one day in an elevator, he said, oh, guys got anything for uh, chubby i'm going down taking the train up to or down to philly playing some songs tomorrow so we pushed the down button went home to my little uh, uh flop house which was about twice the size of the cubicle that we wrote in <laughs> <laughs> two <laughs> and, phone booths <laughs> yeah and we wrote a song for chubby uh which is the the song that he picked out of the stuff that west took so we had our first our first hit, Top Is that, 30. Uh, Lazy Elsie Molly? Lazy Elsie Molly. There's a girl down by the railroad tracks Used to carry coal on her back Till she met that gentleman Jack oh, That a lazy Elsie Molly Lazy, lazy Elsie Molly I put the back back on your back Lazy, lazy Elsie Molly Carried on down to the railroad track Well, later in that same year, 1964, after you guys had the success with the with the Chubby Checker single, um, Jay and the Americans hit number three on the Billboard pop chart with another voice and heart composition, Come a Little Bit Closer. Then I heard her say, I've heard you say that that was probably the most well-crafted song that you had been a part of up to that point. Um, talk a little bit about what it was about that song that was different than what you had been doing previously. Uh, it, it was after we had uh, Chubby's hit and Wes Farrell asked if we'd like to. He found out that uh, Jay, Jay and America were coming up to record and ask if the three of us could write something. And so that was kind of, it was a real... Uh, educational experience for me and a fun experience at the same time hmm. uh, and what was different about it I guess that Tommy always liked to have a title he liked to always start with the title right and it kind of took you where you wanted to go but 
this one, we didn't have a title. We had just threw some ideas around, had a concept that we would write something in the vein of the Marty Robbins country hit, El Paso, mm. except we'd yeah. do an American pop version. And so we started, I, I, uh, I threw out uh, just a setting in a little cafe at the other side of the border. So that kind of set where we were. And, uh, and Wes shot back. She was sitting there giving me looks that made my mouth water. Well, that was whoa. Mm. That was a line I never would have written. <laughs> it was a little racy for one thing, but also just uh, water didn't rhyme with border right. <laughs> where I came from. Right. But the way he sang, then I listened a few times, and it actually rhymed the way he sang it. Yeah. So I figured I don't know how Jay was going to sing it, but uh, it worked. Yeah. In 1965, Little Anthony and the Imperials had a top 10 R&B and pop hit with Hurt So Bad, which he wrote with Teddy Randazzo and Bobby Wilding. Um, that went on to become a hit for several artists, including Linda Ronstadt, who took it to the top 10 in said before that you consider that song one of your crowning achievements as a writer um what is it about hurt so bad that you're most proud of well i love the little anthony version uh i mean just to get a song recorded by little anthony i was very proud of that yeah the fact that the song was top 10 three different times in three different decades by three different artists <laughs> i'll uh, do it it's been recorded by alicia keys and uh uh, the whole list of other people. So it was just kind of a high-profile song in yeah. that regard. Well, your your greatest commercial success came after you guys signed with the music publishing arm of the TV production company Screen Gems and moved back to L.A. in 1965. How did that come about, the signing with Screen Gems and the move back to L.A.? Well, uh, it came about because Donnie Kirshner liked uh, come a little bit closer. Hmm. Uh, Kirshner, of course, of Nevitz Kirshner Music, probably the most uh, successful music publisher of the era, had just sold his publishing company to uh, to Screen Gems, to Columbia Pictures and Screen Gems TV. And so he signed us to, to come back to the West Coast and, and write in their newly opened West Coast office. In your book, it sounded like there was some uh, manipulations going on behind the scenes to, to get Tommy out of New York. Tommy had been living for a couple of years with uh, a, a pretty NYU professor named Susan Hudson, and um, and that's what I alluded to earlier that they they lived in Riverdale, the uh, suburb yeah. of Manhattan. And Tommy was serious about this girl, and probably the only the the, the first girl that I saw him uh, that you get serious about, and. Uh, but at one point, Susan got an opportunity to go with her girlfriend to some music business function. And there she met a man named George Goldner, who was a music business legend. He had owned uh, um, a, a bunch of um, record labels and been responsible for a lot of the doo-wop stuff that came up in the early rock and roll days. And uh, he took a liking to Susan and started calling her. And uh, so... She uh, she was in love with Tommy, but she was you know also bedazzled by this guy who, her girlfriend kept saying, well you know this guy's, uh, do you want to still be hanging around with this, uh, 
semi-successful struggling songwriter or do you want to have the good life like the, <laughs> I mean look at this party with a right. <laughs> with a cater to uh, food on the balcony of this uh, penthouse you know yeah. <laughs> so it was intriguing and then uh, he sent her uh, I think he sent her an expensive watch and uh, just kind of they were having phone conversations so he was trying to convince her that uh, they should be together and she was not willing to make that, sac that uh, decision yet but at one point, Donnie called up Donnie Kirshner, who is now music director for all the Screen Gems television shows and and uh, and still running the publishing company for Screen Gems. And he said, "Look, there's this kid. He's had a he's kind of had a couple hits already, and I want you to sign him and send him out to your West Coast office, <laughs> and I'll pay his uh, I'll pay his advances for the first year. You got to get him out of town for me." <laughs> and so that's when Donnie made the call to to Tommy. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, I began working as a background singer for Teddy Randazzo. So I was spending half my time in New York and half in in Vegas and other other venues um, singing background for what was kind of like a Joey D and the Starlighters kind of a, a group. Three uh, Teddy Randazzo and the Dazzlers. I was a Dazzler that sat, stood behind a stand-up mic with two other Dazzlers and <laughs> did rhythm steps and sang the backgrounds and harmonies. Right. So uh, Tommy took the job, and he signed with Screen Gems in the fall of 64, uh, and he immediately started calling me and said, you got to give uh, Randazzo your notice and, uh, and come to join me. We'll write some hits out here. Yeah. So I joined him in uh, March of 65. Right. Yeah, was, was there kind of a like a, a new focus then you kind of been writing for radio and records at that point and then you're thinking okay are we going to be writing for tv now is there a different approach that we're going to take we th we still saw ourselves as short order cooks for records we thought uh we're the guys if you call us we're going to give you what you need uh, yeah. in a day or two and and uh and we can tailor the songs that we write to the artists that are coming up for recording but at the same time our new boss out here lester sill would be sending us out, out on these interviews uh, weekly or so. Right. And we uh, would meet with people who were going to do a soap opera like Days of Our Lives and mm -hmm. convince them that we could do their theme song. And My mother was a Days of Our Lives fan. Cool. I married a woman who's a Days of Our Lives fan, <laughs> so I feel like a lot of my life was spent walking through the house and hearing, like, sands through the hourglass. Dun, 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 dun. And not a lot of people know yeah. that you wrote that 30-second theme song that is still, yeah. 50 years later, the theme to Days of Our Lives. Isn't That's that amazing? amazing? Yeah. <laughs> They, uh, when is their anniversary? They had it, I guess. Huh? It was 65. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So who knew? Uh, <laughs> you know, and they, and they didn't take our first try. They, uh, yeah. it, it was our third try that they finally accepted. Um, and we were getting, Tommy was getting a little impatient with him. And he said, after the second turndown, he said, forget these guys. We, we let's write hit records. You know, that's, that's, that's all we want to do. Right. <laughs> and I said, uh, give me, uh, uh Give me 15 minutes. We were in a little studio when we got the word that we'd been turned down twice. Little little demo studio. I said, there's a Hammond B3 over there. And then just go play some stuff that kind of sounds soap opera-ish. Yeah. Yeah. From what I used to listen to. My mother's soap, you know, all had uh, organ music as, right. the, as the score. Right. When I was a little kid growing up. So I just played some stuff straight into the... Into the t onto the tape, and that's what they they accepted. 
Well, your greatest success as writers for Screen Gems came with The Monkees, of course, for whom you wrote and produced more than 20 songs, including the theme for the TV show. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. Lester sent us over to the Columbia Pictures lot, and uh, we met with Bert Schneider, and he told us what they had in mind, and that it was going to be these romps, kind of like Hard Day's Night and Help, and ask us if we'd seen those movies, and we said, duh, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we were excited because we knew, we saw what had happened when Ricky Nelson sang his first song on on uh, Austin Heritage Show and, yeah. and the power of combining national television with records. Yeah. And so uh, Tommy, who was always the consummate salesman for Boyce and Hart, uh, sold them that we were their guys and they hired us on the spot to uh, write and produce the three songs that were needed for the pilot mm. and also uh, that we would be able to produce the records uh, because they were going to actually release records even though they were actors. Right, yeah. One of those songs in the pilot, which I don't think was actually a single, but it's become one of the more popular Monkey songs, is I Want to Be Free. I want to be free Don't say you love me Say you like me But when I need you beside me Stay close enough to guide me Confide in me. Whoa, whoa. How did you guys conceive of these songs? How much was the plot of the show involved? And at what point did the monkeys kind of get involved? How did that all kind of work? Yeah, well, I Want to Be Free was a real exception for Boyce and Hart because we always, almost always wrote uh, for uh, an assignment. And we always had a deadline, which was our, our biggest motivator. And... Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a, an unusual song because we both happened to, we were sharing a house on Woodrow Wilson in the Hollywood Hills and one night we neither one of us had a date and uh, just felt like writing a song. Tommy was playing around with this line from a Roger Miller record called mm -hmm. One Dying and a Burying, which is actually about suicide. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's all it would take to make, to set himself free is one dying and a burying. So he said, this, I, I want to be free. It sounds like a title, and we should write something just on that title. So we finished it up probably less than an hour. And this was before the monkey's assignment. So we had this song already written and demoed. And so it was not influenced by the scene, but it seemed to be perfect for uh, Davy Jones walking on the beach after breaking up with his girlfriend song. Right, right. The reason it wasn't a single was... Uh, was a Don Kirshner strategy it, because it got started to get played. Uh, radio stations would tape it off the off the television, right? And it was getting played like a single. Oh, wow. Of course, it was on the first album. Yeah. Uh, and so he said, "Why should we just put it out as a single? We'll just make them buy the album." <laughs> wow. Good plan. <laughs> Smart. So, when you guys would produce the records. Um, from what I understand, like even in the original pilot, those were your voices at first before they cast. I mean, you, you guys made complete 
records, musicians, vocals, harmonies, and you came up with everything. And then the monkeys came in later and, and put their, their vocals on it. Is that right? Yeah. And there's a reason for both of those things that, that we did it that way and that their monk, that their voices were not on the pilot when they were trying to sell it. When, right after they were cast, the four guys were cast. In fact, it was our first meeting with them. So we booked the little demo studio and, and, uh, they all showed up. They were on time. They were cordial, uh, but just really high energy and kind of off the wall. <laughs> and it was hard to settle them down. So Tommy and I hung out and joked around with them for quite a while. And then we said, well, you know, let's get something on tape. And we went in the studio control room, pushed the button. And then after the intro went by, nobody was singing. And they were still clowning around. And this happened for three times. The third time we looked out. And they were in a dog pile on the floor, just wrestling. <laughs> and uh, so we dismissed the session, and we made the command decision that day, Tommy and I, that we would never bring more than one monkey in the studio at a time. Wow. <laughs> so, and it was also the fact that they were very, very overwhelmed as four young actors and the long shooting schedules that they had for doing the, the television show. So we would only have access to them after the filming. Uh, yeah. So we'd get maybe either Mickey or Davey, we'd get them maybe at 10 o'clock at night wow. many times. And so we had everything ready, instrumental tracks, backgrounds, and then we would teach them the song quickly and get a, a vocal. They were both pros, so it didn't take long, and they'd yeah. be out of there in an hour, and we'd have a hit. Wow, that's wow. amazing. Did you guys save those uh, original demos with your own voices on those songs? Those demos are still in the door somewhere at... Uh, yeah. At Sony, which used to be EMI, which used to be Screen Gems Columbia, which, you know. <laughs> right, right. Wow, amazing. Um, well, in 1966, the Monkees hit number one with their debut single, Last Train to Clarksville, which was also the first time you had a number one on the Billboard chart as a songwriter. Take the last train to Clarksville and I'll meet you at the station. You can What's the story behind that song? It was, a song, it, it was based on a, a mishearing of a Beatles record as I, as I pulled into the carport one evening. I just heard the fade out of Paperback Writer, new, new, the new Beatles record, and, and it was, Paul was singing, Paperback, and I thought he was saying, Take the last, and I figured, well, it's got to be a, Take the Last Train right. somewhere. <laughs> so heard it the next day, realized it had nothing to do with trains or going anywhere. <laughs> right. But I told uh, Tommy the, the title idea, and he liked it. And then we kicked around uh, uh, cities and towns until we Clarksville sounded right. Mm. Yeah. And um, it was uh, it was their first single, and and it was zooming up the charts before the television show went on the air. Oh wow! wow. I didn't even realize it was released before the show. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, that debut LP, I mean, that stayed at number one on the Billboard chart for, looks like, 13 weeks, mm -hmm. only to be knocked out of the top spot 
by the second album, which spent an additional 18 weeks at number one. And around that same time, you and Tommy hit the top 40 as both songwriters and artists right. with your own debut single, Out and About. Talk about how you went from being kind of the men behind the monkeys to being artists of your own. Yeah, um, that has to do with your part of your previous question, which was uh, a six-parter, I think. I never got to number six. That's what, what we're famous for. <laughs> how did they, I remembered it, but how did they uh, start to uh, have some influence on their music? Right. Yeah. You know, the, they were, the monkeys were cast to, with two actors who had to learn to become musicians and two musicians who had to learn to become actors. And the two musicians, right from the beginning, particularly Michael Nesmith, really wanted to have some say about the music. Mm -hmm. And the television producers were hopeful that they would be able to produce and write for themselves. So unbeknownst to us, while Tommy and I were in the studio producing the Monkees' first album, uh, Michael Nesbeth was down the street in another studio trying to get songs in the album and ended up with two on the first, two cuts on the first album. And uh, that was a trick that, that uh, Kirshner played on us th throughout that period of <laughs> having, no, having uh, producers on both coasts d wow. uh, doing, uh, doing music unbeknownst to the others. <laughs> wow. So uh, the, Michael was really, you know, he'd had a, he already had a hit as a songwriter with uh, the Stone Ponies, different right. drum. Uh, son, the lead singer was Linda Ronstadt, and uh, so he knew the value of songwriting, and be, and he wanted to have some influence on what they would sound like. But it was just too much to ask them to do too quickly because the show was going on, and they didn't. They couldn't come up to speed quickly enough, and the TV producers knew that, and mm. so they also had the foresight to have bought uh, the number one publishing music publishing company. Oh. So they had access to all the, the top songwriters of the day. Right. And so, but Michael kept pushing right from the beginning, and and uh, once they had all this success behind them, and and. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the second album, Monkey's album, pushing off the first one. In those days, we were expected to to do produce four albums a year, so it was an album coming out every three months. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a whole different process, of course, yeah. as you know. You do uh, the, all the rhythm tracks uh, for four songs in three hours, right. so it could be done. Yeah. Uh, so once he had the a little power behind him, Michael and got the other guys on board and they they pulled a coup and because even though Kirshner was involved in the records and song picking it was still the TV producers who had the final say and yeah. they they fi got f Kirshner fired mm. and uh and the and the monkeys decided they would produce and, and write as much as they could but certainly have have control over the production so that was a perfect opportunity for Tommy and I because we were all by then now in all of the uh, teen magazines and you know Tiger <laughs> Beat and all those guys right as the guys behind the monkeys and so on and so we were having uh 
offers from record labels and what we had gotten in the business to do, both Tommy and I, not thinking we'd ever do it together, but because the offers now were together, uh, we signed with A&M Records and we had five hits with A&M and three albums. Yeah, wow. yeah. And, and even as that was, was going on and even as the Monkees uh, began to take more control they still continued to have hits from the from the boys and heart catalog including words which hit number 11 on the pop chart and valerie which peaked at number three in 1968 story of Valerie how that came about and and why it took so long for that to ultimately be released as a as a monkey single yeah Valerie was a, was the pivotal uh, song right there because we had written we had pr- written and produced it and um, and it was gonna come out as, a, as the next single just at the point where the monkeys pulled their coup and yeah. so all that stuff had to be shelved because now the edict was they had to produce their own records so we could not use the song, the record that we had produced uh, of Valerie because it said, you know, on the Musicians Union contract, it said produced by Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. So it was shelved. And about a year later, Lester Sell, who had now taken over for Donnie Kirshner, was not happy with any of the uh, stuff that uh, had been produced recently and didn't think they had a single to release and needed, badly needed a hit. And he said, we know that Valerie's a hit, but you got, here's the deal. You guys go back in the studio, same musicians, everything, arrangements. Just try to duplicate what you did before, only this time don't take producer's credit. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we knew how much we were making just as writers, so that was not too big a right. stretch for right. us to not right. take So that guitar credit. intro had to be replicated? The whole thing was cut over again, wow. and uh, Louis Sheldon played... Uh, Played his great flamenco licks. That's incredible. Uh, he always thought it wasn't quite as good as the first version. <laughs> well, Boyce and Hart, the artists, continued to have success. Had your biggest hit when uh, I wonder what she's doing tonight. Hit the top ten. that you guys were kind of showing up in the, the the team beat magazines and stuff but you were also appearing as yourselves on bewitched and the flying nun and i dream of genie so as you guys begin to become celebrities in your own right how did that sort of change you know there are new demands on your time new demands yeah. on your life and you're still trying to be creative and yeah. writing how did that change well it changed drastically everything of course changed with the monkeys in terms of success and uh, entree to uh, whatever we wanted in the music business. But uh, it really changed, when, we, as you mentioned, when we, we became artists because, uh, like you said, just too many things to do, uh, mm-hmm. writing songs for others, writing songs for ourselves, touring, 
uh, doing press. Uh, it, it all shifted for us there. And um, it, it was it was uh, just a big, uh, I think there's a George Harrison quote that goes something like the, the fans gave us their love and we gave them our nervous systems, something like that. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens because you just, it's just like constantly going and it never stops. Um, you and Tommy made three albums together and continued to have success with songs such as Alice Long, You're Still My Favorite Girlfriend, and LUV, or Let Us Vote, which was just one part of your effort in the successful campaign to lower the voting age to 18. And when Tommy quit the business in 1970, you continued on. You began working with other co-writers, including Danny Jansen and Austin Roberts, with whom you co-wrote Austin's 1972 hit, Something's Wrong With Me, which fell just shy of the top 10. Um, but then the following year, Austin released Keep On Singing, which you and Danny Jansen wrote. And it didn't break into the top 40 for Austin, but was covered by Helen Reddy, who had a, a big hit with it in 1974. He said, Keep On Singing. a little bit about how that Helen Reddy cut happened. Well, the story that I heard from Abe Summer, who was our attorney at the time and also knew uh, Helen and her husband, Jeff Wald, was that, that they were on tour uh, in a car somewhere and, uh, in the Midwest, and, and Austin's record of Keep On Singing came on. And Helen had recently lost her father, and this song really hit home to her. And she said, keep an eye on this, Jeff, if this record doesn't go big I'd like to cut this record hmm. so as you said it it, it peaked uh, and uh, and they cut it and she did a great job of it yeah. yeah number one on the what's now called the adult contemporary chart number 15 pop hit so major major record for her yeah when you continued to record as an artist and it, which included the 1976 collaboration Dolan's Jones voice and heart which was kind of billed as the guys who sang them and the guys who wrote them um, and then there was the first Bobby Hart solo album which has just recently been reissued on CD for the first time it's got your own version of Hurt So Bad that must be gratifying now to see something that you worked on so long ago but I'm assuming means so much to you now finally get some light shed on it yeah it's, it, was, it was strange you know something that uh, meant a lot to me when I recorded it but didn't get uh, much exposure. It was it came out on a few European labels or the same label in a few Euro European countries, but never was released here. And then uh, Ian Lee and uh, and uh, and Glenn at Seven A Records somehow one of them spotted it and found an old uh, vinyl version in Germany somewhere and said this ought to be out. So they put it out. <laughs> nice. They asked if they could uh, license it to them and. And it was fun to see it on CD so many years after it was recorded. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds great. Pretty uh, soulful, funky kind of stuff. I think if if people only know you from some of the pop monkeys type hits, they'll yeah. be interested to hear like this other side of your musical personality. It's it's a pretty cool vibe. Yeah, you know, uh, I had always been, well, I, I grew up listening to country music, but... Uh, really influenced by R&B. Uh, yeah. And uh, when I played clubs, 
that, that's what always that uh, the kind of stuff I was always doing involving the gay covers and stuff and yeah and uh, <clears throat> so but it, I realized in in seventy eight I had never done a full album as an artist as a solo artist just said let's let's just do this. She's in, she's in As you mentioned, um, you had grown up on country music, and I understand that you and Tommy even performed at the Grand Ole Opry back yeah. in the 1960s. Um, but you began having some real success on the country chart when Johnny Duncan and Janie Fricky had a top five country hit with their revival of Come a Little Bit Closer yeah. in 1978 which was followed by Lane Brody's hit recording of Over You, which you and Austin Roberts wrote for the film Tender Mercies. I know I should, but it's no good, cause time goes by and I'm not over you. I'd gladly be a fool in love again. If there's a chance that you might see me, touch me, want me, ever need me. That song hit number 15 on the country chart. It earned you an Academy Award nomination. Um, what can you tell us about that song? Well, it, it was great going to the Academy Awards. I can tell you that. It was fun <laughs> yeah. sitting there with all the stars. And uh, it's a song that we wrote, uh, that Dustin and I wrote after we'd, uh, Danny Jansen and I, and I had written and produced uh, his, his hits on Chelsea Records. And then a year or two later, Austin signed with Screen Gems and as a contract writer, and he and I would write when he would come out from Nashville. So we wrote "Over You" for the for the film "Tender Mercies," which is an, a nice independent film with yeah. uh, Robert Duvall. And, Great film. And in the film, uh, it's a kind of a washed up, uh, has been country star who's an alcoholic, but or ex alcoholic or whatever, and. Uh, and he has a wife who's also a singer, and every time they cut to her in a club, she's singing her song. Mm. <laughs> and uh, but it was fun. Not only the, the Academy Awards, but the Golden Globe uh, a night was really even more fun because you sat at the round table with all the people from the cast and yeah, and got to meet uh, catch up with Johnny Cash again that night with his wife and nice. Robert Duvall and Betty Buckley and so on. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. When as we enter the 1980s, you continued to be a presence on the chart. Um, New Edition had a top 30 R&B hit with My Secret, and Robbie Neville reached number 14 on the pop chart with Dominoes, which he wrote with Robbie and Richard Eastman. Now, production-wise, that stuff sounds real different from the Monkees, right? And yeah. I mean, the 80s, production-wise, just began to really take on its own type of thing. But production changes all the time. Does the process for you of writing a hit song change from decade to decade? Yeah, you got to listen to the radio, 
at least in those days we we'd listen to the radio today yeah. you listen to whatever youtube or yeah <laughs> but uh yeah that that's why we called ourselves short order cooks because we always stayed abreast of what was what was hitting we always uh read uh, cash box and billboard charts every week and mm. we made sure that we knew what every record on that top 100 sounded like mm. and we analyzed even the songs we didn't like that much we said well why is it on here why is it a hit yeah and so we we just tailored tailor made songs for for the acts that we would be shopping to. Hmm. Well, in 1994, uh, Tommy Boyce took his own life after suffering serious health challenges following a, a brain aneurysm. And though you both had many successes apart from one another, your names will forever be linked as one of the great American pop songwriting teams. Um, now that he's been gone for more than 20 years, as you look back on what the two of you created together as you look back on your legacy what do you think it was that made your collaborations work so well well a, a number of things i think the fact that we both started out as, as singles even though we lived in the same city doing the same things we were writing separately hmm. so we both learned to write both music and lyric uh then we did the biggest one i think is that we were such close friends we just we were friends first before songwriters and uh so we had the same goals and learned from each other and respected each other's talents and uh, it was just fun bouncing off each other when we first signed with screen gems 65 our life was a piece of cake i mean we we would we'd often write in the outdoors and go to the beach and lay on the beach in the sun and write and we'd go to the park we'd we had a, a little a rented a little house in the hills and and uh, but we didn't have to write every day if we didn't want to yeah uh, we had i think we were obligated to turn in uh, a song a week or something but mm. we might take a week and write 10 songs and then <laughs> goof off for a while <laughs> so it's just just uh having fun yeah and as I said, that, that the fun part of it wasn't as uh, wasn't around as much later when we got so stressed out mm. as, uh, as 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 uh, as artists as well as all the other things we were trying to keep going, all yeah. the juggling. But I, that that's the number one thing I think is that we just bounced off each other and had a really good time writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Monkees just released their twelfth studio album, uh, "Good Times." commemorating 50 years in the business. And I was really, really glad to see that they included a Boyce and Hart song yeah, on the album. <laughs> um, the song Whatever's Right. And you actually uh, appear as a backing vocalist on the track as well. rest of the album you also have then people like rivers cuomo from weezer ben gifford from death cab for cutie noel gallagher from oasis and what i would say doing their best voice and heart you know to, <laughs> Thank you. to write those songs for the record is it um is it gratifying to see that you know you have influenced a younger generation of writers and musicians who are, are really trying to aspire to some some songs that you've left that are lasting influential songs in the music culture it is gratifying, and it's always shocking. You know, in the first years after the monkeys up and down, uh, 
it was not cool at all to admit you, we were, you were a monkey fan. <laughs> and, uh, and so we didn't know what to expect when Tommy and I teamed up with Mickey and Davey and went out in 75 and 76 as Dolan Jones, Boyce and Hart. Uh, but we, uh, we showed up to our first gig in uh, amusement park in St. Louis, and, and there were 26,000 people. Wow. So we knew that there was somebody out there, even though nobody was admitting it. <laughs> and then little by little, we would hear about people who, who would come out and say that they had been influenced and loved the monkeys, like uh, Michael Stipe from R.E.M. and, uh, and Cheryl Crow, who, uh, yeah. who, who admitted to being a monkey fan. And, uh, and then little by little, it came out of the closet. And over the years, uh, uh, it's, it's gratifying to see the kind of appreciation because mm. because of my book i've been out on the road now for the first time in many years and yeah. much more uh, in the public presence and just seeing the fans come up and tell you what what the songs meant to them and uh i think it probably all started when rhino records bought the monkey masters mm. yeah and when ando sandoval started going through the not only going through the archives and looking at, at the tapes and listening to, he wasn't just listening to the songs he listened to the production process yeah, and he, you know, in his book, he talks about you know what Tommy was saying and wh which one of us was in the control booth and which one of us was out with the band and right. what the influences were and and that's the first time I actually saw in the in the uh, in a in a CD uh, booklet where where uh, somebody said, well, it it's obvious that Boyce and Hart probably created the the sound of the monkeys, even though the others. Uh, definitely came along and had hits. Hmm. Yeah, they kind of patterned it after what we had started. So yeah, that was the first of the of the props, and it's yeah, kind yeah. of been building ever since. And it's yeah. the wonderful 50th anniversary. Well, certainly uh, an amazing legacy of music, and I definitely want to encourage our listeners to pick up Psychedelic Bubblegum, your autobiography, which has just been out uh, in less than a year, I think, and is a great read and a lot of great information on your your career and. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This oh, it's has been my great. pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Take the last